Thank you very much, Duncan, and welcome to our morning service after the end of what has been a most eventful week. This chapter is a slightly unusual one for the book of Samuel, where David uh, has been so active uh, the past number of weeks we've been following his story. He's always been doing something or going somewhere or in some sort of distress. But this chapter, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7, is, is really a, well, more of a two-way conversation between the Lord and between David. In fact, the only action that is proposed is for David to build God a house, and even as we see, he doesn't even get to do that action. So completely different from what has gone before. So if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we will read the whole chapter. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed from yourself for, for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house 
and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So the only action in this chapter is David wanting to build God a house. And the Lord says, nope, that's not happening. I'm going to build you a house, a lasting dynasty. And David responds in prayer and thanksgiving. This is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And we're going to be selective today and focus on three key things that I think will be of benefit to you. It will certainly have benefit to me, and I hope it will be to you. I want to focus on God's revelation to David, what he actually said, what he revealed. And then secondly, I want to see, as we've been looking at David these past number of months, how has David learned in his faith? How has he applied this practically? And thirdly, I want to explore David's God, the character of this God, how he deals with David in this chapter. King David is now in his mid to late 30s, and he's living in an expensive house of cedar wood. A contrast from his previous addresses when he lived in caves in Adullam, the types of place that King Saul would have used for a toilet. And perhaps David felt that having had some rest from his enemies, the Lord God had indeed exhausted and confirmed and realized all of his promises. But actually, as we shall see, the Lord had much more to fulfill for David much more than David could imagine. David has a really good sound plan to provide a resting place for God. He too has had rest and relief from the nations around him. He takes counsel with Nathan, the royal prophet. He says, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. David had good thoughts, good plans, and good instincts, good godly instincts. And no doubt these two men would have discussed at their early morning coffee briefing all that David was intending to do. But it is that night that the Lord interrupts business as usual to bring a very important announcement to David through Nathan. Announcement that will turn all of his musings and ideas upside down. Because God reveals to this great king that he has a much bigger purpose for him and his house building ideas. Because it's not going to be David who's the builder of a house for God. It is God who will be the builder of a dwelling place for David and for his ancestors. It's the other way round. Now in this chapter, the word, the Hebrew word for house, has the same play that we have in English, where house can mean a physical structure as well as a dwelling place or a dynasty or a family. And it's used 15 times in this chapter. You can go through it and you can mark it with a pen. Twice, the word house talks of David's palace, where he's living at the minute. Four times, it's of God's, Yahweh's temple. But nine times, the word house in this chapter refers to the house of David, his dynasty, his legacy. And the frequency 
2, 4, and 9, with which this word house is used, is instructive because it points us to God and his plans to bless David, to bless David's royal son, rather than focusing on anything that David could do for God. So David has good thoughts, plans, and instincts, godly ones. Yet all of these ambitions, hopes, and plans, while good and commendable and praiseworthy, were not the best. And I thank the Lord that they weren't the best because God's urgent injection of his word and his blueprint for dwelling have made this chapter a turning point, a really vital part, not only in David's existence, but in the existence of the people of God, who time again would have looked to what God had said to David whenever things were really very, very dark. We, like David and Nathan, must rely on God's word and counsel. Normally, day to day, we make plans and decisions. We use godly wisdom, common sense, what we know of God and his word. But that is never the final word. And we must always be prepared to bring those plans, those ideas and pet projects we have, those closely held ideas, and say, God, is this what you would have me to do? Because David, in verse 27, does confess that this was indeed God's revelation, his revealing of truth. So what does God actually reveal? Well, he reveals to this prophet Nathan, Nathan, almost reverently speaking with a note of divine surprise, that, well, no one else has offered to build me a house, and nor did I commission any of the previous rulers or judges of Israel to do this for me. Because God, in the Old Testament, had actually been pretty mobile. He'd been moving around in this tent. Now, it wasn't that this physical tent, this tabernacle, contained God. It it was an idea, it was a symbol of God's presence living with his people. And God says, nobody's asked to do this for me before. And in fact, actually, I'm telling you what I have done for you, David. I've taken you from following sheep in the pasture lands to being a leader, a prince in Israel to the royal courts. I've taken you from being surrounded by enemies, from having to act like a madman, from not being sure where you're going to get your next meal, your next bed, whether you're going to even survive, to being planted in rest and peace and security. I am making your name great, David. And in all this, God tells David, I have been with you. Even in the darkest, smelliest, dankest cave that David has been hiding in, even when the time he's had to act like a man driven insane to preserve his life in front of the Philistines, even when he was in danger from King Saul, and even when he boldly and courageously faced Israel's greatest adversary that time, Goliath of the Philistines, in all of these endeavors, God was with David. But you know, So much of our Christian experience is not actually about ourselves. We are people who are often full of self-reference, self-love, self-concern, self-absorption. And certainly, as David reminded us, and as we've been reminded on our media this week, whenever a life is lived for a higher and greater purpose, a purpose of service, a purpose which is not focused in self, but on others, it achieves true greatness. And this is why David was great, because from his own body, God says, there's going to be a royal son who's going to establish my kingdom forever. He's going to be the one that's going to physically construct this this temple in Jerusalem. And he's going to have the same relationship that you and I have. I'm going to be a father, and he will be my son. 
But you know what, David, even better than this is that this is not going to be another tried and failed plan. This is not going to be Saul 2.0, where Saul, who had every chance to be the person David was, blew it. Because while David had been given a new heart, a renewed heart, Saul had only been given a different heart. And it was a heart that didn't respond to the things of God and went on a path that diverged into selfish destruction. No, this is not going to be Saul 2.0. The king isn't going to be surly and self-justifying whenever you know, he's disciplined, whenever he goes astray and sins, because the Lord's love will never leave him. And the kingdom is going to be established forever. Can you grasp the absolute amazingness of this revelation it must have been to David? To have God himself, through a trusted prophet, tell David the dimensions of what he was going to do, not only for him, but for those after him. David was learning that God was able to do much more abundantly than he could ask or think. And you know, David didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ. He certainly wrote of God's Messiah, but he didn't know the ins and outs of it as we do. But we can see just how great a name God was going to give David, like one of the men of faith such as Abraham or Moses. We see the greatness of what God has done for David when Jesus, the Son of God, accepts the title, the Son of David, from a blind beggar in Jericho. Can you imagine the legacy that that would have been for David? But yet, God's loving faithfulness wasn't going to puff David up. It was going to show David just how great God was. And we see that in David's response. Because it is a revelation between a father and a son, between one who serves God and between one who serves his people. There is a family relationship there. And how amazing that in the Jewish religion and the Christian religion, God isn't remote and out there wanting to sort of punish us or roast us alive for every sin or transgression or failure of religious observance. If you are a Christian, you are in the family of God, not some generic family, but you have a relationship with God himself. We see this relationship fulfilled in, in David's physical son, Solomon. But as amazing as all these things were going to be, we need to take a step back here and see what is the Lord really, really doing here? What's actually going on? Because this was amazing stuff for David. But what relevance is it for us today? How would it help the people of God decades and hundreds of years after this revelation to David when they were suffering? Well, as we take a step back, we see that there are eight instances of the word forever in this chapter. Eight instances where David and God say, this thing is not going to pass away. This is no temporary kingdom. There's talk of God's loving faithfulness, this covenant love where he binds himself to his people and says, I'm going to be your God and you will be my people through thick and thin. And while this chapter never uses this word covenant or agreement or contract or lesser words, the richness of the word covenant is brought out in the uh, musical uh, version of uh, 2 Samuel 7 in Psalm 89 that we'll not take time to read, but it is a psalm which talks about the Lord's covenant with David. Because the Lord is promising to do certain things for David, 
and to establish the boundaries of that relationship. The Lord doesn't whitewash David. David was a very imperfect man. He would do all sorts of wrong things. But yet, when he and his sons went astray or committed sin or iniquity, the Lord would bring them back. He would be a discipline. As a father disciplines his child, the Lord would bring him back. And we're going to see a bit later on why this was so empowering for God's people and so necessary for David at this time in his life. And is it any wonder in verse 19 that David so perceptively says, this is instruction for mankind? But let's have a little look more at actually the significance of this covenant, because there's something about the way that this little chapter is actually written. So the first sort of 18 verses are God's revelation to David, God talking to David, and the last are David talking to God and repeating a lot of what God has promised him. It's almost a little bit repetitious, it repeats itself. And David takes what he's been promised to him and prays it back to God. And I was reminded how so often in Scripture that there is this pattern where God says something and then it's repeated back with similar or the same detail. It does that to show that God's Word is powerful and active and that God's people obey to the letter, not slavishly, but out of diligence. So you see it in the creation of the world, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be and there was. There's this repetition to show the security and faithfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. But you also get this pattern whenever this mobile tent the Lord was moving in the tabernacle that the Israelites constructed when they were brought from Egypt. In Exodus 25 to 31, seven really, really long chapters that you'll struggle to get through in one sitting. This is the longest, almost complete, uninterrupted speech of God in the whole of the Bible, these seven chapters, and they're all related to detailed plans of the furniture and the materials and the dimensions of this tabernacle, this kind of mobile house that God was living in. And then, several chapters later in Exodus, you get several more chapters saying, and this is how they built it. It's very repetitious. You think, look, could you not have sort of edited the thing down a little bit? Well, no, that would not have been God's character, and that would not have helped us. Because in between this first giving of God's plans, and God said, and God said, to, and the people did this, there's a wee bit of a bump in the road. And that bump in the road was as Moses was getting these detailed plans, the rest of the Israelites, Moses was up on a mountain communing with God, the rest of the Israelites led by his brother Aaron, were taking the gold and the precious things God had given them and were making this sort of golden calf idol and were worshipping it. They were completely undoing everything God was telling them and was going to show them and had prepared for him. In fact, Moses has to step in and say, look, Lord, would you punish me? And said, could I take this people's sin and be punished in their place? Please don't destroy your people. And God says, well, no, Moses, it's not up to you to be doing that. But we will start again those 10 commandments that my people have all broken, let's write them again, let's renew this covenant. And God graciously does this because when we all mess up and when God tells us things and we disobey, even though his intentions to us are only good, are only for our best, and yet when we fall short of them, God doesn't just discard us. He gives us a second chance and a new phase 
can begin, as it began with these Israelites and as it began with David here. Because David had already failed and he would make many other failures. He would face difficult times ahead. He would commit murder and adultery. He would see his own household in many ways fall apart because of his lack of leadership as a father. He would be bitter. He would have fits of rage. But yet, God did not give up on David because God knew that through David, he was doing something wonderful that would bless the whole world. David has experienced rest, but it is not the full rest of God. David had some of the blessings of God, but he didn't have them all. He was living in the now and the not yet. He'd one foot in Jerusalem, but he'd also another foot in God's future promises. And this is the reason that David didn't build a physical temple, because God was still on the move. You see, it wasn't so much that people had to climb their way up to God by doing good works or being religious. It was the fact that God came down and rescued people. He was still revealing his heart. He was still active on behalf of people and in their lives, even though they may not have felt it. And he today is still journeying with us. He is our shepherd. We are following him. When you're a Christian, you don't follow a concept or an idea. You follow a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a similar experience to David. We know so much more, but yet we've one foot in this world and one foot in the next where we wait for the Lord Jesus Christ, a savior from heaven, when all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Jesus Christ, when he will reign forever and ever. And how amazing when David had this noble idea, he could not have imagined the things God had in store for humanity, for you, for me, for everyone in this building today who confesses Christ. God could have said, yep, okay, we'll have a, a localized, you know, temple here, this is fine, and we just wrap things up and you die and the temple falls apart, and that's it. But that would not have been God's message for the world. That would not have been a message of hope. And how David responds to this in his faith is so instructive. You see, whenever my pet plans are messed up, either because I know they're not right, or circumstances, the Lord has engineered circumstances that mean, well, I can't pursue that, or this door isn't opening, I can often get a bit impatient or bored, a bit dismissive, a bit sort of self-centered. But David, because of the things that he has learned through trusting in God, through thick and thin, doesn't respond in a negative way. Nathan the prophet gives him fully God's word. And yet David sees that this actually is instruction for us all. It is a revelation. And he responds, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? He confesses God's greatness. There's no one like God. He commends God for rescuing Israel as a nation and for giving them security. He has moved beyond the active, almost angry young man, you know, who, yes, one day will cut off a giant's head, but on the next day has to be restrained from cutting off the head of a man called Nabal. He's a man who will form great friendships with people such as his good friend Jonathan through covenant, but yet later on, he's going to break a covenant when he commits adultery with Bathsheba. So there's so much good in David that he has to learn, but he is still, as we all are, a work in progress. So when we have our schemes, 
the way we want to live our lives, maybe upset, maybe in small ways, maybe in big ways. What is our response? Is it like David, knowing that we can trust God's promises? Or is it like King Saul, who tried to justify himself, tried to take things into his own hands? I will offer the sacrifice. I will lead the people into battle, even though God says, I'm not with you. Today, we don't get messages um, through prophets giving us direct words from God, but through prayer and scripture reading, the counsel of others, we can actually have our minds renewed spiritually to think, how does God view this situation? And David reflects all this back in a wonderful prayer. An an older preacher from um, the 19th century said that some people pray from a book, others will pray from their head, but there are a few that can pray from their hearts. And this is what David is doing here. He's not just praying a formula out of a book. He's not even just praying an intellectual type of prayer. He's actually praying from the heart. And I must say, it's been a a long time, I think, since I have prayed in anything like this out of my heart, out of gratitude to God, or out of so much dependence on Him. And how does David specifically pray from his heart? Is it just religious emotion? No, it's not. David uses his head. He uses the promises of God. And as Dale Ralph Davis says, prayer pleads the promises. The prayer that we give to God is based on what he has said, how he has revealed himself. And that means David has so much boldness and confidence to come with thankful humility to this God and say, Lord, fulfill this forever do what you have said. I have confidence that you can do that. Because David had trust that no matter his previous life, no matter what was to come, no matter the failures, this God was his father. So how did this sustain the Israelites as they looked to the future? What did it teach them about God himself? Today in this world, we face so many problems. And the past two and a half years, war, pestilence, COVID, famine, economic hardship, global warming, people's hearts failing them for fear. This past week, we've had a new prime minister and a new king. The old reliable certainties and people are are passing away. But we must learn not only from David, but also from our late Queen Elizabeth II, that actually royal counselors and human plans can only do so far. We must indeed trust the words and teachings of the Lord Jesus, who can be our true guide and can illuminate and light the way. So how did the church, how did the Israelites sustain themselves from this chapter? Solomon was a good king, and he built God a house, but he went astray. He combined the worship of other gods with the worship of the one true God. And because of that, this contributed to God's kingdom literally splitting apart the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And in no more than a generation, the cynics could have said, well, where is God's promise? Even in a generation, we have a split kingdom, we have strife, we have the worship of the true God compromised. Where is God's promise now? Is God really true? Yet whenever things were at their bleakest, God reminded his people through a prophet called Isaiah that even though you think everything's been cut down and destroyed, there is still a root 
and a stump of, of David's line, the root of Jesse, David's father, that will have a little shoot that will bear fruit. It's going to take time, but once again, you're going to go through hard times, but God has not left himself faithless to his promise. And it certainly didn't look at this time as Israel and Judah would have a succession of disasters, especially Israel where each king just rejected God. Even the kingdom of Judah, who had some faithful kings, had others who were just scoundrels. And so they needed to hear this hope that the rest of Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, where it talks about this root and fruit, how that this would spread to be a global sign ushering in an age of peace and the collecting together of all God's people, no matter who they were, scattered throughout the world. And in fact, in Psalm 89, the end of book three of the Psalms, which talks about God's covenant with David, God's people are now completely dispersed there in exile. The house that Solomon has built has been ransacked and completely flattened and destroyed. And they ask, not in a cynical or a bitter way, but in a confident and pleading and heartfelt way, where is your faithfulness you promised to your servant, David? And they can only get to Psalm 89 when they've come through Psalm 88, which is the most bleak psalm that you could read. It doesn't even end in a note of hope. It talks about darkness being our closest companions. And you know, the Lord is sometimes taking individuals, his church, even nations through times of real darkness and difficulty so that they can trust in him and find in him rather than their plans real certainty. God was journeying with his people. And as the darkness got darker, people had to cling on ever more securely to who God was. When our Lord Jesus Christ came, King Herod, who should have been the end of that godly line, was the one who was so paranoid about holding on to power, he went and slaughtered infants. Yet I believe that our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing these scriptures, knowing that he was the son of David, took comfort that as he went into deep darkness, as he went into that pit, as he experienced death and rejection and, and the bearing of sins for you and me, that God would answer his prayer, that he would not leave behind his loving kindness or his faithfulness. In fact, Solomon was the beneficiary of this promise to David, but much more this was about Jesus Christ, the much bigger and better and greater royal son of David, who would bring what we call saving or salvation to people. God revealed his plans to David, and he's revealed them to us through his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. God has reacted in grace and tenderness as he did to David. He rescued him, he gave him hope, and he would do even greater things for him. God is not hard, God is not miserable. God can be your God and your Father if you will trust him. Listen to his word, come to these services, talk to Christians. Ask the difficult questions of us. Let us pray with you. Let us introduce you to this person of Jesus Christ and the precious promises 
that can sustain our spirits, no matter the darkness of the future. We still have much to trust God. He has done so much already, and I have no doubt that the things we see in this world that are troubling will one day be seen to redound to his glory. For David, he saw some of it. For David's sons, they saw some of it. But they had pieces of the jigsaw, as we do. Let's sing our final hymn with faith that there is a higher throne than the throne of David or the thrones of any in this world. A throne that is ruled and upon which sits our servant king, who in grace has made us a people who has given us a hope through his precious promises.